All right, we are we are in the book of Acts. So um, if you got your Bibles, which I know all of you do, because you came to church today to hear from God, open them to Acts chapter 1. This is definitely a better turnout. You guys braved the roads today. Thought we were going to have like 20 people, so this, is, this isn't bad. And I learned last night to not take a sleep aid on the night before you preach, so... <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I'm coming or going right now. I, I think that it's I think that's better to just lose sleep than to take one of those things, man. That's what I'm finding out. So we'll see what happens here. This could be weird. Last week, Brent started the book of Acts. Verse 1 went to 5. I'm going to be picking up in that narrative, uh, starting at verse 6. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, so when they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them with white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. In uh, John chapter 14, Jesus says, verses 1 through 3 to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me also. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so or true, I wouldn't have told you that I was going to prepare a place for you. But if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Um, this had to have been an extremely difficult time for the disciples right here. These guys had done three years of life, eating and sleeping and talking and traveling, like doing life together with Jesus for three years. And he continued to tell them over and over throughout his ministry, like there's going to be a time I'm going to go, like I just read in John. Like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be here continuously, like, for forever with you. I'm gonna have to go. And of course, there were rebukes that would come from the disciples. They didn't understand. They definitely didn't want him to go. But he prepped them for his departure. He prepped them for a day when he would no longer be there bodily. But they did not understand. And the truth is, there were a lot of things that the disciples didn't understand, even though they had God as their teacher and their guide. There's a lot of things they didn't understand concerning what Jesus came to accomplish. And we see this misunderstanding that they had of him in this last thing that they say to him before he leaves. Here's a question in verse 6. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
Now, this question may seem innocent and reasonable on the surface, or even maybe legitimate or fair, but the truth is that this question is selfish, and it is worldly. And I'm probably going to make a few enemies this morning, and that's not my intention. Do you, do you guys know that call the door of their home, do you know that we pastors love you? We love you. And because we love you, we try to be as faithful as we can to what God has given us until his son comes back. And there's times that the church is not about the things they should be about. There's times that our heart's in the wrong place and we're just simply distracted by things that don't matter, but we think that they matter most. And so I just want to qualify before I go into this. I love you. What they're asking and what they're waiting for and hoping for and wanting from Jesus is for Jesus to fix Israel. He wants them to throw off Rome, throw off their oppressors, right? Throw off the power that's come in and taken their sovereignty from them and brought their their heathen and their paganistic uh, worship and way of life with them into Israel. And they're wanting Jesus to step up and purge it. And I mean, what a better time for Jesus to do this now, right? I mean, they're probably thinking like, dude, this is the perfect time for you to enter the political, the political realm. Like the, pol- the political climate is ready for you because you're on the heels of your greatest feat yet, the resurrection. Like that's going to draw crowds, man. You know, you just start showing up, showing yourself alive and, and, and throwing down some good speeches and handling business and you're going to have the people behind you. And you can flip this thing around. You can almost picture it. These 11 disciples looking at him with great anticipation and hope, wearing red hats that say, make Israel great again. <laughs> and, I, and I mean, you guys laugh because that is funny, but this is where I'm going to get in trouble. See, the emphasis that the followers of Jesus had after all they had seen and all they had heard and all they had been through was still on that present earthly kingdom rather than the kingdom that's coming. I believe this is the greatest way that Satan has crippled our evangelistic effectiveness of the church in this country today. The church in America has largely become distracted by the state of our present kingdom above the state of our eternal kingdom that's coming. Brothers and sisters, social and ethical and moral politics here and now is not something that we need to completely avoid or stay out of as Christians. But... America's politics, no matter how right we might be able to make them, is not and never will be what this world needs most. 
It's not mankind's ultimate solution or answer or need or hope. And it's time that the church in America learns this. We must stop acting like, talking like, believing like the best thing that can happen for us and our neighbor is to put godly laws in place. Sounds really bad, doesn't it? It's not. Because all that that's going to do is moralize an immoral people. And for what? So that we can be comfortable following Jesus. Sure, they will be forced into abiding by moral laws, but they'll still burn in hell for eternity because no one is bringing Jesus to their dark heart. That's what they need. I mean, what kind of hypocritical selfishness is it that we're participating in? America, even in its most glorious golden years, listen to this, was not God's idea of heaven. Or his idea of an eternal kingdom that's coming. So why the heck is it ours? Yes, it's good to see good done. I want to see good done. I fear for my kids and their kids that they're going to have in the kind of world that they're going to grow up in. Like, I get it. I'm human. It's good to go to bat for God. And for good. And for righteousness. But what if we're fighting the wrong battle? What if we're fighting against God rather than for God in trying to Christianize America? What if everything is going according to God's plan? And yes, I mean the ugly trajectory we're on. You know, like where Jesus says in the last days, the days just prior to my return, everything's going to be so contrary to me. It's going to be so bad. That unless I shorten those days, nobody on earth is going to be saved. What if everything's moving forward according to His purposes, and we're the ones that have a problem with it? His own people. I have a few ideas, personal ones, about why we have a problem with it. I know for myself, for one, I think that the American church has a huge problem with the thought of living uncomfortably as Christians, because we've never had to before. We don't know what that looks like. I believe that the church is so bent on keeping this country moral and ethical because we're used to being the moral majority, not the minority. We're used to being in the driver's seat and not the trunk. But I'll tell you what, when you look out across uh, the landscape of the church, the history of the church... The majority of that time, the church spent in the trunk, not the driver's seat. It's time for us to stop avoiding the cost of following Jesus by Christianizing people who are not Christians. That's very cruel and unchristian. Brothers and sisters, the mandate for the church is not that we bring all people to Jesus. The mandate of the church is that we bring Jesus to all people. And those are two different things. It's time for us to stop cheating. It's time for us to start believing and living according to our theology of a better coming kingdom. That's what we're here to herald. 
I'm not saying that we should be happy and we should throw a party because evil is prevailing. I'm simply saying, church, get ready for your finest moment. The bad news is that the disciples didn't get this. The good news is that in the next chapter they do. A light goes on, like literally, on their heads. And then the rest of the book of Acts is this long-running narrative of what it looks like for a small group of people to live for a kingdom that's coming, not a kingdom that's here. That's what the entire book of Acts is. Being witnesses, not for good legislation and laws, but for Christ. The disciples ask, Lord, how, you know, will you make Israel great again now? And Jesus says, verse 7, none of your business. He doesn't like completely rebuke them like I kind of just did. He's just kind of like, none of your business. It's not your concern. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons the Father is fixed by His authority. Don't worry about that. Don't even concern yourself with that. Rather, concern yourself with this. Verse 8. You're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. He's going to come upon you. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, you're going to receive power. For what? So that we can come together once a week or twice a week and bark like dogs? Or flop on the ground like fish? Or speak in languages that no one else understands because it seems like God's with us when we do things like that? No, we're going to receive power so that we can testify of Jesus. Manifestations of the Spirit, no matter how miraculous they are, are not for themselves. And they're not for you. They are gospel authenticators. The power is to testify that Jesus is real and that He's done what He says He's done. That's what the Holy Spirit's for. We're going to get power so we can be His witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. In other words, locally, regionally, begrudgingly, that one doesn't fit, but you get it, and globally. (laughs) Three of those are actually speak of places. One of them doesn't. Um, Put simply, who is the church going to bring Jesus to? Those who we love, those who we don't love, and everybody else in between. That's who we're to bring Jesus to. In other words, the gospel is to be withheld from no one. Nobody. The gospel is for everybody. There is no room for the church to be preferential or partial as Christians with what God has entrusted to us, and it starts where we live. They lived in Jerusalem. Right? So let's talk about Jerusalem. For us, Peyton Jones in his book, Reaching the Unreached, at one point asked this question, or he said the question might be asked, where's the front line of God's mission? 
And the answer is go home, open your blinds, and look out the window. Because that's your Jerusalem. It's next door. It's across the street. It's over the fence. It's in your home. Where's Judea? It's where you work. It's where you shop. It's where your kids play soccer. Where's Samaria? It's where it's dark. It's where it's ugly and it's where it's wicked. It's that place that you don't want to go. So you pray that God will raise up people to go there. (laughs) It's where they do things and they believe things that make you cringe. It's where there's people unlike you. That's Samaria. Where's the whole earth? Well, it's it's those places we don't live and most of us can't go. But God is making sure that others can. It's the Ukraine where the rhymers are. It's the isolated jungles of Thailand where the browns are. It's in Slovenia where the wicks are. It's in Wales where the Joneses go. Speaking of to the ends of the earth, to my shame, um, for many years as a Christian, um, I couldn't stand evangelizing. I didn't know how to talk to anybody. I was scared to death. I, I thought, man, I can't share Jesus with people because they're going to ask me a question and I'm not going to be able to answer the question. Like it just went on and on and on. And so my idea of getting out of evangelism but feeling like I was in it was to come to church and then drop money in the box to support a missionary. And, and that way I felt like, hey, I'm, I'm giving money to someone who's preaching the gospel uh, so that I don't have to. Now, I don't want to play this down because it is a big deal that us churches that have been given much give much. It is a big deal when we send our money and our resources over to people and places so that they can carry out the gospel in those places. But it doesn't get us off the hook at home. I want a few of you to consider that. It doesn't get us off the hook here. God still wants you to be active as a witness of Jesus Christ in your Jerusalem, even if you're helping spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And by the way, think of those people often that I mentioned. There's real people doing real things with real families and real fears and real worries just like you and I, and they're off in these foreign places with foreign people for the sake of a kingdom that they believe is coming. And we need to be on our knees for these people. So please do that. Join us in that. And yes, it's okay if you feel led to drop some money in the basket for these people because they need it. All right. So the ends of the earth. And so Jesus gives this mandate, much like what he's already given in the Great Commission and the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Luke. And then something weird happens. Because nothing ever weird happens around Jesus. You know? Something weird happens. And he begins to levitate. 
They're just having, they're just having a conversation. And then he, uh, he has a liftoff. Like, that would be weird. He begins to float in the air like a balloon. He goes all the way up to where a cloud, like, engulfs him, right? And takes him out of their sight. And you can picture just the crickets and the mouths open. Like, no one's saying a word. Like, they can't. In, in fact, it's funny because here we have these two guys come out of nowhere and come up behind them and they're like, <laughs> like, like, what are you guys looking at? And like, by that time, Jesus was already out of their sight. It's like they were paralyzed. Like, what in the world just happened? You know? Pretty interesting, pretty dramatic, dramatic fashion. But here's what a question that every believer should want to know and needs to know the answer to. Where is Jesus now? Where is Jesus now? And it's the ascension of Jesus that we see here that answers this for us. The ascension is often the unspoken landmark of the life of Jesus. It is actually the punctuation or the accent on the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It kind of matters. And so, and so real quick, here's just five, I put up ten, five, um, reasons. <laughs> I didn't know which hand I wanted to use. Why the ascension matters. Five reasons why the ascension matters. These are going to go kind of fast. If you're a note taker, you can just write the top of them down or whatever. Number one, the ascension matters because it means Jesus is alive. Jesus is still alive. You and I do not worship a dead man. We worship someone who's very much alive. This is why we talk to him. This is why we worship him. This is why he's able to help and hear and remain powerful and active in and through us is because he's alive. He's not dead. That's why you can go to Israel today and you can look into the garden tomb and guess what you see? Nothing. Because he ain't there. It's the reason why they've never produced a body, which is all that any skeptic who's ever wanted to crush this Christianity thing has ever had to do. And with DNA now, you can do it. And nobody's produced a body. You know why? Because he ain't here, but he's alive. That's why no one's ever found or produced him, but he's with the Father. He's just not here. When the disciples saw him ascend, how did he go? Bodily. He was standing there physically talking to them, and then they saw him physically have liftoff. He went bodily. So Jesus is still actively ruling and reigning over all things now. He's just, he's doing things to earth just not from earth. He's alive. Number two, the ascension matters because it gave us the Holy Spirit. And sometimes I sit around going, why do I need the Holy Spirit if I can have Jesus hanging out with me? You know what I mean? But we find that the Holy Spirit's very helpful. You know, God, for whatever reason, I've never understood this one, seems to have this one person on earth at a time rule within the Trinity. 
Like, I, I don't understand why. But Jesus says in John 16, 7, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You know what words stick out to me here? To your advantage. Like, I like advantages. And I need advantages. And if Jesus is telling me that it's a greater advantage for the Holy Spirit to come, I believe it. What does the Spirit do to us? Well, we see right here in verse 8, He gives us power. I need power. I need a power that I do not naturally possess on my own. Do you? I'm scared to death to be a witness for Christ. Are you? I'm inadequate to say the things that need to be said, to testify properly about a Savior like Jesus. I need help. I need power. And no matter how good my speech is, no matter how well I can, I can put words together or be passionate about the gospel of Christ, I do not possess the power to make those words come alive and resurrect that person's heart from the dead. I need the power of the Holy Spirit with the testimony of Christ. The Bible tells us the Holy Spirit's a helper. I need help. That He's a truth bearer. That He's a comforter. I need comfort. Sometimes you'll see me rub my own belly while I'm up here. It's because I'm nervous and trying to comfort myself. He's a gift giver to the church. I love gifts. But these are spiritual ones. That's what makes this place so beautiful. It's not because of what you are and what you bring to the table, but because of those spiritual gifts that God lavished upon you when He adopted you through the Spirit. That's why each and every one of you are insanely necessary to me. It's because the Spirit has given you something I don't have. And for some reason, He's given me something you don't have. And so it binds us together. He's a gift giver. He's a convictor concerning righteousness and sin. I don't know about you. I need that. He's a life giver. He protects us. He seals us. He secures us. He secures us to God in Christ. He sanctifies us. He renews us. He transforms us. The Holy Spirit connects us, mainlines us to God. The Spirit intercedes for us in ways that we cannot to God and shows us how to pray. If you take all these perks, which there are a ton more perks concerning the Holy Spirit for us, it spells A-D-V-A-N-T-A-G-E, advantage. It spells advantage, like this is an advantage. Number three, the ascension matters because it gives us a divine attorney in the highest courtroom. Now, this is this one's really, 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 really important to me to know. I hope it is for you too. The ascension's important because it gives us a divine attorney in the highest courtroom. The ascension of Christ into the courtroom of God gives us an ever-present representative of and for our justification. That's big. 
Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus, in the presence of the Father, always lives to make intercession for us. That's beautiful. Tell me that doesn't spell victory. In the midst of the garbage that you're in right now. Victory. In Jesus. In the highest courtroom. Before the Father. There is a case Jesus is continually making on our behalf. He's arguing our case, which is forgiven and bought and paid for. That's the case that Jesus is making in that courtroom. Who's going to come against that argument from that man, the God-man? See, Jesus has, in a sense, turned the judge for us. We are now continually forgiven and continually declared righteous because Jesus bought off the righteous, just judge with his own blood. The judge is not against us, he is for us. This means that our substitute for both punishment and righteousness stands in the highest courtroom 24-7 testifying on our behalf. That sounds pretty good. The ascension does that. Number four, the ascension matters because it gives us direct access to the Father. This is good. Christ in His full righteousness on our behalf is our connection into a place we were once not able to go. Not only with our presence, but with our prayers. And now we have full access. When Jesus ascended, He connected the Wi-Fi between us and God. To where now, via the Holy Spirit, we can come before Him and we can cry, Abba, Father. And we can have fellowship with our Dad. We can now be heard by and have fellowship with Him. These lines of communication, access, and approachability to the throne of God are real because Jesus has ascended to the throne of God. And number five, and by the way, if you've never done a study on the ascension, there's a lot of reasons why the ascension matters. I'm just pulling out five real quick. Like, this is a full study, and it's a good one. But the ascension matters because it means that when we become absent from these bodies, we become present with the Lord. The ascension of Jesus testifies to us that Christ fulfilled and accomplished all of that which Adam failed to do. And as a result, Jesus is the forerunner that has pierced the veil of the most holy place, that we may now follow Him through. He punched a hole through the wall of glory that we may charge behind Him through that wall. It's a bridge built from a sinful people to a holy God where a bridge once did not exist because we burnt it down. And it's the ascension that completes that construction project of that bridge. Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That sucks. That's not Adam, and that's not you and me. That's Jesus. And because Jesus has ascended the hill of the Lord with clean hands and a pure heart, all who have their hands and heart cleaned by the blood of Christ get to follow Him up that hill and enter into that holy place. Hebrews six nineteen through 20 
We have this sure and steadfast or ever-present anchor for the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Wraps up the ascension pretty good. This is why there is now no guilt in life and there is no fear in death for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Where He is, there we will be also. And finally, in this text, we have a a declaration of better things to come, which circles us all the way back around to where we started. The kingdom. Look at verses 10 and 11. While they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Here we have these two mystery characters that seem to appear out of thin air because it wasn't weird enough that Jesus took flight. And they seem to have some inside information. Which makes it interesting. They say when he comes back, he's going to come the same way that he left. How was that? Visibly? Publicly? Bodily. Visibly? Publicly? Bodily. And this, I, I, I want us to understand that this doctrine is kind of important. Because there have been so many cults and religions over time that have started because one dude had a private briefing with Jesus. No one saw it. No one knows where it was. But we seem to be having these special meetings with these special people where Jesus is coming back from time to time and saying, shh, over here. You know what Jesus says about that in Matthew 24? He says, when you hear people going, shh, over here, here he is. Don't listen to him. Run the other way. Because he ain't going to come back like that. When we see him again, it ain't going to be secret. It's going to be ridiculously public. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 17, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. This means that Jesus' return will be visible, not secret, Public, not private. Know that. There ain't going to be any guessing when our Lord comes back to this earth. And what is it that He's going to do when He comes back? He's going to ultimately, permanently, finally, set up His eternal kingdom. And when He does, at that time, Jesus is going to drain the swamp. (laughs) Donald Trump is incapable. I don't care what he changes, he cannot drain the swamp. He does not have what it takes. And I don't care who comes in after him. They do not have what it takes. We cannot fix what we've broken. 
We will only continue to break it. He will establish the kingdom that we all long for. All people who oppose Him will be banished. All poverty and injustice and wickedness and prejudice and greed and violence and strife and war and hate and sickness and disease is going to end. There will be no more gender confusion or perversion. There will be no more sex trafficking. There will be no more babies being slaughtered in the womb. There will be no more homeless camps. There will be no more debates concerning immigration, no more health care crisis, no more discrimination, no more corrupt leaders, no more politics, no more CNN, no more Fox News. Praise God. Get them both out. There will be no more people calling evil good and good evil because He who is good will be seen and known and present. There will be no more lies. There will be no more deception. No more excuses to worship ourselves rather than the Creator. This is what the draining of the swamp looks like. This is what the kingdom that we hope for and long for and live for will be when Jesus appears. So lift your eyes, Christian, past Washington, D.C., up and over to something better. Lift your eyes over your state capitol. Lift your eyes over your president. Because the real kingdom is coming. And it's going to look so different. And it's going to be far superior. And it's that message of that kingdom that we exist for. My back hurts. God, thank you that you've entered places that um, we weren't allowed to go. Thank you that one day, um, all these things that we believe and that we talk about and that we long for will be um, not just a hope, but a reality. That, that one day we're going to stand where you stand and we're going to see what you see. Thank you for accomplishing everything necessary for that to be real for us. God, if there's anyone dead in here in their sins today, wake them up, please. Testify to their hearts that Jesus is more real than the seat they're sitting in and that He's coming back. And we need to be on the right side of that. So God, make Your Spirit um, consume those who You're saving. Make your church stronger, God. Help us to keep our eyes up and over the top of what we see, feel, and experience right now in this world. We acknowledge that it's the blood and body of your Son that allows us access and that we enjoy right now at this table. So please create in us um, a heart of um, just beautiful worship as we come and we take that. In your name, amen.